0: In the early hours of October 7th, Palestinian militants with Hamas, the Islamic group that controls the Gaza Strip, mounted a stunning and highly coordinated invasion of Israel. They rampaged through Israeli towns, killing people in their homes, attacking young rave goers, and taking some 200 hostages. The attacks by Hamas were horrific, gruesome and despicable. Some of them live-streamed on social media for maximum impact. These were soon followed by Israel declaring war on Gaza. Announcing a complete siege and starting a relentless campaign of bombardments that has killed thousands of civilians, flattened entire neighborhoods and unleashed a humanitarian catastrophe. Western leaders were quick to respond to the attacks by Hamas, with France, Germany, Italy, the United Kingdom and the United States issuing a joint statement, expressing their steadfast and united support to Israel and supporting the country in its efforts to defend itself. Some of them even making the journey to Tel Aviv, from President of the EU Commission Ursula von der Leyen to British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, US President Joe Biden and French President Emmanuel Macron. But beyond the unified front, a number of Western countries are voicing concerns about giving Israel carte blanche in Gaza. On Tuesday, addressing the Security Council, UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres called again for a ceasefire.
1: I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law.
0: In this special episode, we look at the West's response to the conflict and what the situation is like for the millions of Palestinians locked in Gaza. I speak to Prios Jörgen Jensehaugen, a specialist on the Arab-Israeli conflict. And we are joined by Jan Egeland, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, who has teams on the ground. I am Arno Siad. And you're listening to Prio's Peace in a Pod. Let me start with you, Jan. Uh, UNRWA, the UN Relief Agency for Palestinian Refugees, just confirmed that 35 of their staff in Gaza has been killed since October 7th. About half of them were teachers. It's a catastrophic situation for humanitarian workers there. So let me start by asking you, what is the Norwegian Refugee Council doing on the ground in Gaza? And how does your personnel describe the situation?
2: Well, the Norwegian Refugee Council has been for decades in Gaza. We support both the education sector and we are having, where we have trauma care for children, we lead the shelter cluster, as it's called, which is the organisations in Gaza that are responsible for emergency housing and shelter for Palestinians, which means that we try to rebuild as much as we can between each war. But of course, now the the problems will be insurmountable for the future. We also have other relief programs, and we have uh, some 60 staff there in normal times. At the moment, we have 53 colleagues inside of Gaza. They are all Palestinians. They are all fleeing for their life, really. Uh, I think they're nearly all were in or around Gaza, where we had our big headquarters. And uh, now I think we have 10 colleagues left in Gaza. The rest have fled to Yunis in the central part of Gaza or even further south. But they are reporting of the same relentless bombardment, same deprivation, same lack of supplies. It's just terrible. Some of our colleagues have also lost uh, close relatives. Thank God, I think as of today, none of our colleagues have been killed, but one female colleague of mine lost her only child uh, to the bombing. It's horrific.
0: Right, and of course, this isn't the first war in Gaza. Jan, how is this different?
2: I mean, there has been one war on and in and from Gaza every second year, more or less uh, the last 20 years. What what's different now is that it's it's a hundred times more, and uh, and 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 we're still in the beginning. I I fear of what's happening. I mean, for Israel, it was seen as an existential kind of attack the the one that Hamas did uh, two weeks ago, um, and therefore their uh, their response have been. Uh, beyond belief it's it's they uh, they are using the sledgehammer now on gaza to to crush as they say hamas but of course in such a densely populated place it means massive loss of civilian life including many many dead children
0: right and Jorgen, there have been two resolutions drafted at the UN Security Council, one Russian-led on October 16th, which called for an immediate ceasefire but was rejected by France, Japan, the UK and the US. And a Brazil-led resolution two days later calling for humanitarian pauses, which was vetoed by the US. Because according to the American ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, I quote, this resolution does not mention Israel's right of self-defense. So uh, as an academic who has long followed the Israeli-Palestine conflict, were you surprised by the inability of the UN Security Council to act? And what do you make of the West blocking of these two resolutions?
1: So unfortunately, I wasn't surprised at all. But I think if you come into this as somebody who hasn't followed the nitty-gritty details and dynamics of this conflict and you read especially the Brazilian resolution, it's really shocking that it was vetoed. It doesn't even call for an end to the conflict. It's very clear that it condemns uh, Hamas. It's a very normal resolution, so to speak, and it just calls for a break so that humanitarian assistance can come in. But even that is uh, evidently too much because the Israeli policy here is to finish Hamas, and in that, they insist on having a, a chokehold on Gaza. So for them, this was too much, and therefore the U.S. Uh, vetoed it. And this also, in in the longer term, puts the West in a very bad light because it, it's clear that that defends Israeli policy in Gaza when the extent of the Israeli violence is really indefensible.
0: Right. And uh, while deliberations were ongoing in New York residents in Gaza were being and are still being bombarded and told to evacuate south. Gaza has been under an extreme blockade by Israel with water, electricity and fuel cuts. Jan, what are the implications of the complete siege ordered by Israel on Gaza?
2: The implications are that uh, that 2.3 million people, I mean a very large population in a densely populated area, Remember the the, uh, the municipality of Oslo is bigger. The municipality of Bergen is bigger, and there are 2.3 million people there, and they really rely on on on, on aid and on uh, f- f- some 500 trucks coming in per day, commercial and aid trucks. All is gone, including the electricity supply, fuel supply, water supply. So it means that my colleagues and everyone around them are running out of uh, supplies. It is, uh, and, and when you call about, say, it's an evacuation that happens from the north, well, it's really an Israeli deportation order. They say you have to leave your homes, the most densely populated part of Gaza, if not, we may well mistake uh, you for being Hamas, and we may shoot you. Uh, we have concluded, by through our international law experts, that this uh, could amount to forcible transfer of populations, which is a war crime under international law. It's uh, not an evacuation. Uh, the evacuation is is what the what happened with the privileged Norwegian tourists that were given. Uh, An airplane with an orderly uh, departure to Norway, that's an evacuation.
0: Right. And uh, I'd like you to put it in perspective for us because the clock didn't start on Saturday, October 7th. Gaza had already been under a blockade since 2007, since Hamas took control of the territory. Jan, what had been the impact of that blockade before October?
2: Well, uh, the blockade of the siege has been... On and off. I mean, it's it's never been fully lifted. Never ever. Uh, you go through areas crossing, as I've done many times, and you feel it. I mean, this this is checkpoint Charlie during the Cold War, going east to west in Berlin. It's it's it, 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 just a few people make it, and and it takes forever to go through all of these checkpoints. Uh, the but there's been periods where there have been then four or five. 600 trucks per day. Um, There's also been people of late working from Gaza into Israel. So it's sort of on and off. The problem, as I see it, is that Israel, which was and is the occupying power, can switch on or off the opening to this sealed off place and they can switch on and off the electricity on and off the trucks and so on which means that it it amounts to collective punishment when they say that this rocket or this attack uh, has enraged us so we shut off supplies to a million children it's 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 collective punishment on the international law
0: right and Jürgen. The president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, was one of the first foreign leaders to go to Israel to show support following the attacks by Hamas. Standing next to Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, she said Israel has the right to defend itself. And she said, I know that how Israel responds will show that it is a democracy. This is how Claire Daly, a member of the European Parliament from Ireland, responded.
2: And when the EU should have been arguing for a ceasefire for the upholding of international law, for the protection of civilians, Ursula von der Leyen touches down in Tel Aviv to photo op the preparation of a genocide and says Europe stands with Israel now and in the days to come. How dare she? She has no authority in foreign affairs matter. She does not speak for me. She does not speak for Ireland and she does not speak for the citizens of Europe.
0: This came on the back of a previous announcement by the EU Commission that it would suspend payment of development aid to Palestinians and then reversing that very decision. So even for the EU, this sounds like serious and deep disagreements between nations on how to address the situation, right? Yes,
1: yeah, so the EU has been split over Israel-Palestine for a very, very long time. On the one hand, it's uh, it's kind of a body that's, uh, you know, more um, supportive of the Palestinians than the US, for instance. But on the other hand, you have member states that are very, very supportive of almost all Israeli policy. So there is a deep divide within the EU here. But I think the EU uh, aid question really shows the depth of, of this conundrum and internal disagreements because that first initial response of stopping aid was really... A wrong headed uh, policy where you would punish Palestinians that had nothing to do with Hamas for what Hamas perpetrated. And that's really the reason that they've uh, backpedaled uh, on it, fortunately. Um, but it does show how aid to the Palestinians has become so deeply politicized that even supporting civilians in the Palestinian territories has been seen as problematic from certain actors in the EU.
0: So, Jorgen, while in Tel Aviv, President Joe Biden announced the U.S. will be providing $100 million in humanitarian assistance for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. A few days later, he asked Congress for over $10 billion in support to Israel, mainly military support, and over $61 billion for Ukraine. Can you talk to us about the discrepancy in financial support?
1: I think this goes to a kind of deep point in US policy towards the Israel-Palestine conflict, which dates back to the very, very beginning. And that is that Israel is considered a legitimate state that one supports, whilst the Palestinians are primarily considered a humanitarian issue meaning that money is given to alleviate the the suffering of the palestinians but to israel it is given as a a full-blooded support to their policy and that's that's a fundamental difference and this has been you know really a question both of the deep political understanding of the conflict but it's it's also really manifest in scale here
0: right and in the same vein in the war in Ukraine, we've heard a lot about those red lines from Moscow, but also from the West. President Biden told Israel, don't be blinded by anger in the way we were in the US after 9-11. And all Western leaders have called on Israel not to breach international humanitarian law. But do Western governments have a red line for Israel in this conflict?
1: You know, it's, it's really hard to say what a red line is, because there's there's no clear indication that this is the concrete red line. Don't cross it. It's very re- uh, it's very vague. So what would be that point? I think it it varies from from country to country, and it's it's really a question of so what would they do if that uh, vague, undefined red line is crossed? And I don't see one really being present at a time. I think the. Complete uh, suffocation of Gaza in one sense was a red line, but the pressure to alleviate it has only resulted in you know uh, trucks coming in in you know double digits when it used to be triple digits. Um, so you know was that really a red line?
0: Right, and uh, I started with asking Jan a question about. UNRWA. And Jorgen, I want to ask you a question about that as well. Uh, this has been the UN Relief Agency for Palestinian Refugees for seven decades. It has been the primary provider for state-like services such as education, healthcare, for millions of Palestinians refugees living in limbo in Gaza, the West Bank, Syria, Lebanon and Jordan. And the agency has been a central actor in Gaza in the last two weeks, often providing the only place of refuge, really, for many. But UNRWA has been on the brink of bankruptcy for years. You've recently written that collapse of parts of UNRWA is only a matter of time. So how is this possible? How is it that an organisation so essential to the lives of Palestinians was already on the verge of collapse even before the events of the last two weeks?
1: So UNRWA is, like much aid and questions relating to Palestine, has become deeply politicized. And you have actors both in the US and in the EU that insist that UNRWA is part of the problem because they maintain that UNRWA kind of falsely upholds Palestinian dreams of uh, return. That being said, we see very clearly that in a crisis, UNRWA is at its best. UNRWA is an extremely valuable uh, UN organization that provides, as you say, healthcare, education. It is there for the long haul. But in times of crisis, it's also one of the biggest providers of shelter for deeply deprived Palestinians. Uh, it's there on the ground, it has the know how on the ground. And it is just simply one of the best institutions on the ground for the Palestinians. And this overhanging threat of bankruptcy is really one of the deep tragedies uh, in the Palestinian situation because it has not received enough funding at all the last, uh, you know decade, really. And it's, it's always been scraping through and managing to survive. But it is a question of time, you know, will there be a point where the budget just doesn't suffice? Um, and if that happens, then we're talking, you know, a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe.
0: Yan, you speak to a lot of journalists. I am a former CNN journalist, and I saw some of my former colleagues, correspondents in the West Bank, in Egypt, being confronted by crowds. Essentially, mainstream media being told you are not being fair in your coverage. And I think one particular issue has been what many perceive to be The humanization of one side with detailed profiles of the hostages taken by Hamas from Israel, with pictures, life stories, which we can all agree is essential for everyone to understand. We're talking about human beings here. And at the same time, the media has been accused of dehumanizing the other side with rare portraits of who are those Palestinians in Gaza losing their lives every day. In other words, we show faces on one side, but piles of rubbles on the other. Some journalists have said that the difference is access, that accessing Israel is, is simply easier. But Jan, do you agree that Palestinians are dehumanized in the media?
2: Well, I, 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 I just feel so uh, heartbroken oh. that you have this tremendous, tremendous polarization. I, I know uh, Israel and Palestine, well, both. I've been there f- for the last... 45 years. Um, I studied at the Hebrew University. My brother was in the Kibbutz in 1967. I have many Palestinian friends, many Israeli friends. What has happened, I think the the larger picture is that in Israeli media and in most Western media, uh, it is the primary story has been the gruesome nature of the Hamas attack. It's really terror to kill children and women and and civilians like that did. Uh, but it is um, it, it mustn't be underestimated that the rest of the world are watching how how a, how a completely defenseless civilian population is just, chased around the map and, and their homes are being smashed and their hospitals are being overwhelmed by, by children and, and civilians. So I, I just fear the consequence of this will be, in a year from now on, nothing will be solved. A million new problems will have been created and there will be even more polarization between Israelis and Palestinians, but also between, in a way, the west and the rest on this why how come they say that occupation is so bad in ukraine but seemingly okay uh, with the palestinians uh, that 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 needs to be answered and understood by western leaders in capitals like washington and berlin and and brussels paris london
0: right and and to that very comment you just made yan Let me go to my very last question, and that will be for the both of you. Look, we already know that the rush to back Israel's assault on Gaza is undermining the West's message about Ukraine, on protecting Ukrainian civilians, on condemning Russia's bombing of civilian infrastructure. A senior Western diplomat told the Financial Times in recent days, what we said about Ukraine has to apply to Gaza. Otherwise, we lose all our credibility. So based on what we have just discussed, what message would you say the West is sending to the Arab world and to the global South at large, Uh, Jorgen? I think uh, I can actually start by uh,
1: indirectly quoting uh, King Abdullah II of of Jordan here, who who made a statement saying, you know, The message that the Arab world is receiving is very clear. Palestinians are are less humans than Israelis and that human human rights and international law applies differently based on religion and ethnicity. And his point wasn't that this is true, but his point was to say that that message that uh, a lot of people in the Middle East read out of this is very alarming and it creates a lot of of dislike and, and hatred, really, for that type of, of understanding of the situation. It undermines international values as being international.
2: Yeah, I, what I hope is to see a future where we depoliticize support for civilians, uh, wherever they are and, and, and in whatever state this, they are. Um, the, uh, the, it's now strategized and militarized and politicized Humanitarian aid is protection of civilians, is and so on. Um, of of course, it it it's it, it's true that it was terror from Hamas side, and it and the as I've said Al Jazeera Arabic many times, it's, it's wrong to say that Israeli women and children are uh, prisoners of war, as Hamas calls them. I said that on Arab on Al Jazeera Arabic three times, and I know Hamas is is watching. So what I hope is that the United States can not just say to Israel, please, please adhere to the rules of war. When they see that they are not, one has to put pressure on one's allies and not just, uh, you know, lecture the other side. I think that's the larger, the larger issue here. If not, the West and the rest will both lose credibility forever.
0: Jan, Jorgen, thank you very much. Thank you. This episode was produced by Arnosyad and edited by Brage Pedersen, with sound from Israel South First Responders, Justus Uwakwe on X, the United Nations, Clear Daily, and CNN.